I'm going to invite you, if you have a Bible with you, to open with me to the Old Testament. And I'd like you to start in the book of Judges in the Old Testament in chapter 4. So if you have a Bible, you can find that book of Judges partway in the Old Testament in chapter 4. And just hold your place there. We will get there in a moment. It's been a year and a half since the Taliban took control of Afghanistan and just over a year since they banned teenage girls from school. Here's an image on the screen there just of, you've probably seen these kind of images of women in Afghanistan. This rule has had a devastating impact on Afghan women and girls. This new research from the Human Rights Watch and Human Rights Institute shows. Since taking control, the Taliban have imposed rights-violating policies that have created huge barriers to women's and girls' health and education, curtailed freedom of movement, expression, and association, and deprived many of earned income. The Taliban have banned women and girls from secondary and higher education, had altered curricula to focus more on religious studies. They dictate what a woman must wear, how they should travel, workplace segregation, and even what kind of cell phones women should have. They enforce these rules through intimidation and inspections. The crisis for women and girls, this report says, in Afghanistan is escalating with no end in sight. Taliban policies have rapidly turned many women and girls into virtual prisoners in their homes, depriving the country of one of its most precious resources, the skills and talents of the female half of the population, end quote. It's sad to see that, and we see it. I would argue that false religion frequently subjugates and demeans women. That's almost universally true, and it's certainly historically true. Unfortunately, today, many people in our culture would lump Christianity and the Bible into this same category as oppressive and demeaning to women. Which, just so you know, historically really fails to realize that almost everywhere the gospel has gone, the value and dignity of women has been greatly elevated from that existing pagan culture. If some in our culture have this view of Christianity, it's especially more common to think this of the Old Testament, that women were unimportant, they were devalued, they were seen merely as property of their husbands, like Afghanistan. In our series, God's design, God's grand design, the beauty of biblical complementarity we are taking a whole Bible look at God's design of men and women. An intentional, complementary 
design, we have called it. A complementary design, and what we mean by that is men and women equal in value and personhood as made in the image of God, yet different and complementary in design and function. That that's God's good creation of us. And although as sin enters the world through the fall, we looked at that, this design and purpose is often, often distorted and abused like we see even in Afghanistan. Nevertheless, in the Bible, it continues this good design because it's part of the very fabric of God's creation and it is restored and displayed in God's covenant people. So having laid a foundation for this biblical complementarity in the first chapters of Genesis, last Sunday we looked at what I called Old Testament patterns. Old Testament patterns. What do we see in the rest of the Old Testament? How is this design of God fleshed out even post-fall? Even knowing there are distortions and corruptions and abuses, how do we see the design of God? Old Testament patterns, not prescriptions. That's not what we have for us in the Old Testament. Not prescriptions, but patterns of God's basic design and function of men and women amongst His people. And while they're not prescriptions, yet I would argue they are instructive for us Today in the church, I noted three patterns that we see kind of in a broad brush way in the Old Testament. Three patterns. Here's we looked at two of them last Sunday. We'll look at the third one this morning. Here were the two we saw last Sunday. First, the equality of man and woman, the equality of men and women. We would expect this with our view of creation and complementarity, equal in value and dignity. We see that in the Old Testament. We saw the equality in worship, the equality in prayer, the shared responsibility in teaching children, and even some share in the prophetic gifts. We thought of the role of the prophet and a few occasions of a prophetess we thought on last Sunday. So this equality before God of men and women you see in the Old Testament, unlike what we are witnessing in Afghanistan. The second pattern, though, we noticed was the priority of male leadership. The priority of male leadership. This is all through the Old Testament. We looked at the patriarchs, what we called patricentrism, that is, that the father, the center of the family, Everything kind of comes out from him, the leadership and responsibility of the father to provide and protect his family. And that the whole community of Israel, this early nation, before they have kings, is really built upon this as it extends to clans and tribes and elders within the congregation. Those are men. We looked at the patriarchs. We looked at the priesthood, which is exclusively men. Of a certain tribe, certain family qualified. Remember, the priests are the spiritual leaders, the institutional leaders by the law of the people of Israel. They were the teachers of Israel. They were in charge of the temple and tabernacle worship. 
They mediated God's relationship with Israel. That's their role, the priesthood. And then we looked at the, the monarchy, the kings, not queens, the kings of Israel, all kings which point ultimately to King Jesus. So we saw that last Sunday. And we noted that while there are certain cultural and Old Testament expressions that are not normative today, we don't live in the same fashion that they do, yet, is what I wanted to emphasize, there is an unambiguous, unequivocal pattern of male leadership amongst God's covenant people reflecting God's design and purpose. It's all through the Old Testament. Here's the third pattern that we'll focus on exclusively this morning. The examples of godly women. Examples of godly women. The Old Testament, for all of its charges of being misogynistic and hopelessly patriarchal, has numerous examples of women playing an essential role in redemptive history. The Old Testament is full of heroic and ordinary women influencing history, helping men, exercising personal responsibility, and displaying godly character. It's filled with it. It celebrates godly women. And while they do not serve in primary leadership roles, we saw last week, they're not the head of families or elders, they're not the priest, they're not part of the monarchy, yet women are hardly passive, unseen, or unheard from. Their example is highlighted and celebrated throughout the Old Testament. And is in keeping with the God-designed complementarity of men and women. The pattern continues as the stories celebrate women. Examples of women in the Old Testament. That's our whole focus here this morning. I want us to just enjoy this. It's not often we get to take a step back and just consider this as a whole. All of these women, by the way, that I'm going to mention, 20-some of them, we have studied in our series on the Old Testament. We have looked at them in context, and here we're just going to step back and highlight, and we'll look at a few specific texts. When you think of that, if you are familiar at all with the Old Testament, who comes to your mind? Who comes to your mind when you think of women in the Old Testament, godly women. I, I'm sure many would come to your mind. We can't go over all of them. And so what I want to do to help us kind of see this is I'm going to break this in kind of three categories for us. Women under these three categories. Here's the first category. Women displaying courage and faith. Women displaying courage and faith. That is faith, resourcefulness, Trust in Yahweh. Again, many of those. Here are ten of them. I'm just going to list them here. We don't have time to work through all of these. But here are ten. You can put that first bullet up there. There they are. 
Here are ten women displaying courage and faith, starting in the book of Genesis. Tamar, who, by the way, there's an example of a woman mistreated. We see some of these distortions and abuses come in. She's mistreated, but she, in the end, exhibits this tremendous courage and faith in a very difficult situation. Shipra and Pua, do you know those two names? From Exodus 1, they're the midwives who disobey Pharaoh. Imagine that. Take their lives in their hands. to dis- They are named in Scripture. Shifra and Pua. In fact, if you just think about it, the, the whole beginning of the book of Exodus, which is about the coming deliver Moses, the birth of Moses, and how Moses will be the deliverer, the entire story of Moses coming is moved forward by women. Do you know that? These two women, his mom, Moses' mom, his sister Miriam, the daughter of Pharaoh, women are highlighted. It's quite fascinating. Rahab, we probably know best, Rahab and Joshua too. She is not an Israelite. She's part of the Canaanite people who hides the spies. Again, taking such a risk. She identifies with Yahweh. She hides those spies. She protects her own household Becomes part of the people of Yahweh. An incredible woman. Naomi. In the book of Ruth. Again. Quite a figure who suffers so much loss. And yet continues to cling to Yahweh. Brings her daughter-in-law back. That, that's an incredible story of this woman. I always think that book maybe is misnamed. Maybe it should be the book of Naomi. Because she is such a central figure there. The woman of Bahurim. Now that might be one you don't know. The woman of Bahurim, the only reason I know it is because the other night in our Bible reading at the dinner table, we were reading Second Samuel, and we read the story, Second Samuel 17. This is the woman, this is when David was on the run from Absalom, if you remember that story, and he had a couple spies in the city that would come and report to him, and they were about to get caught, and this woman hid them in the well and covered it over and directed the soldiers a different way. She's like Rahab that way, that's who she is. Jehoshaphat, I highlighted last Sunday, she is the aunt of Joash. Remember Athaliah, that wicked usurper in the book of Kings who is trying to destroy all the Davidic line. But this woman, with such courage, hides little Joash as an infant and raises him six years in the temple. She's named. Ruth, of course, the last two we know the best because they have books named after them. Ruth and her incredible clinging to Naomi and Mary's Boaz there. She's known for that, part of the line of Christ. And of course, Esther, Queen Esther, outside of the people of God, there in exile, her courage to save her people and approach the king. There's a list, quite a list. These women are celebrated for their unusual courage and the significant role they played in the history of Israel. Then I want to highlight more specifically these two, Deborah and Jael. And that's why I have you in Judges chapter 4. So if you have your Bible open there, that's where their story is found. Judges, actually Deborah, Barak, and Jael. Deborah, Barak, and Jael. I want us to just take a, a little closer look at this story as we think of these women. 
The reason I want to take a closer look at this story is because always, it seems, in this discussion of men and women and roles and church, the question of Deborah is always raised. Always. In fact, for those who would perhaps disagree with my understanding of the complementarity of men and women and the roles within God's people, Deborah is often seen as the trump card. As if Deborah single-handedly overturns the entire pattern of the Old Testament and anticipates a time when all distinctions and roles will be gone. So I want to think of her a little closer. If she is an exception, she does have some uniquenesses, but if she is an exception, she is the exception that proves the rule. That proves this pattern all through the Old Testament. Yes, there are some uniquenesses with Deborah, but I will argue that this text and Deborah and Jael still displays the complementary pattern of the Old Testament. Let me just read the opening. Now, just so you know, again, we've taught through all of Judges, preached through the whole book of Judges. In fact, almost 10 years ago to this week, preached Judges chapter 4. So you can go listen to the story in its context. I always encourage that. It's much better to hear it that way. But let me just read the opening, Judges 4, verses 1 through 3, following your Bible. The sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. And the commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harosheth Hagoim. And the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, for he had 900 iron chariots. Think tanks. Right, that's what he had. They didn't have. And he oppressed the sons of Israel severely for 20 years. So here at the opening, we have this pattern. We, we haven't been in the book of Judges for a long time. But just so you know the setting, this is right after the days of Joshua. The people have inherited the land, and yet there's a lot of Canaanites still in the land. And they're supposed to extend this conquest. However, we see this pattern where... There's these cycles, there's six cycles in the book of Judges of rebellion. The people rebel, that is, they go into apostasy, they worship other gods. It's like we saw in the book of Kings, but here it starts early. And then God brings a judgment by foreign oppression. He uses other nations and peoples to oppress his people. Here, it's Jabin, the Canaanite king, oppressing for 20 years the people. Then the people cry out to the Lord, and the Lord has pity he has mercy and in that he raises up a judge a deliverer that's where the book gets its name judges but it's a little misleading they're not judges like we think in the court of law magistrates sitting on a court rendering judges no this word shafat judge is used pretty broadly in the old testament and here it's referring to military deliverers Savior figures that God raises up to throw off this oppression in a military way and then to help rule the people for a, a certain season until the cycle starts over again. This is the third cycle. And there's a slightly different pattern, a very intentional different pattern. So let's keep reading there. Verse four. What we're expecting now is like in the, all the other patterns is for it to say, and God raised up so-and-so to be a deliverer. It's going to say that, but it takes a while. 
the calling of the next deliverer is expanded very intentionally because it's part of the point of the whole story, which we don't have time for. Verse 4, now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at the time. And she used to sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the sons of Israel came up to her for judgment. Now she sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali and said to him, Behold, Yahweh, the God of Israel, has commanded you, Go, march to Mount Tabor. Take with you 10,000 men from the sons of Naphtali and from the sons of Zebulun. And I will draw out to you Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his many troops, to the river Kishon. And I will give him into your hand. Then Barak said to her, If you go with me, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the honor shall not be yours on the journey that you are about to take. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hands of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. We'll just stop there. Here's where we're introduced to Deborah. And it is a bit confusing. Admittedly. Who is Deborah? This is what I'll say about Deborah. I'll just say something about each of these characters. Deborah is a prophetess whose role was to raise up the next, quote, judge by Yahweh's command. So Deborah, very clearly, is a prophetess. So we looked at that last Sunday. We thought of Huldah and that role. This gift could be given to women. There's only four in the whole Old Testament, yet it's not illegitimate. Could be given. She's given the word of the Lord here, and that's how she functions. So she's a prophetess, but her specific role here is to raise up the next, quote, judge, deliverer, military savior for the people of Israel. That's her role. It says there, what confuses us, I think, is it says that she was judging Israel at the time and the people, she'd sit under her, where her home is, she would sit there. So she wasn't a traveling prophet. She wasn't speaking publicly to the whole nation. But she would sit there, and it says, the sons of Israel came up to her for judgment. And so because of this, this word usage of judge, and it's kind of broad usage that confuses. Was she the judge? Well, she's not the judge. In the book of Judges sense of a military deliverer. But she is judging. It's hard to know exactly what she's doing. Perhaps... She is providing some kind of adjudication, guidance, counsel for people in their cases, which, by the way, highlights in the book of Judges, pretty dark times, highlights the absence of the priest. Where are the priests in this book, the teachers of Israel? We don't see them. We only learn of corruption at the end of the book. Anyway, she may be providing that kind of guidance for people because she is a prophetess. She has the word of the Lord. Or when it says there, more likely, there at the end of verse 5, that the sons of Israel came up to her. So whenever that phrase, sons of Israel, means they, they're coming up as a people, come up to her for judgment. That is, they're coming to petition her because they've been 20 years under oppression. Where's the relief? That's her role. And she's going to speak God's word to this man, Barak. So just here to emphasize... She's not, quote, the judge. That is, she's not the military deliverer that we see throughout the book of Judges. That's not her role. If she's judging in some sense that it's providing some kind of counsel, it's divided from this normal 
action of military deliverance, a savior figure. We see that because she does not take on this role. It would have been easy there for her to say, I'm just going to lead this. No, God tells her specifically, I want you to go take this step to this man, Barak. He lives way up in the north. I want you to call him. Maybe he was a commander of some type. seems to indicate that to call him. He's the next judge. That's why with Deborah, she's never raised up by the Lord to be this judge. She's not the deliverer here, the savior figure. She's completely absent at the end of the story. She doesn't take part in the military. And when she describes herself, by the way, chapter five, judges four and five go together. Chapter five is Deborah's song. Her poem, she writes poetically about what the Lord did. She calls herself a mother in Israel, not a savior, a mother in Israel. She sees herself in that light. So again, that's just important when the writer of Hebrews is going through that great list of faith and those people in faith. When he gets to the period of judges, he names Barak. You know that Hebrews eleven thirty-two through 34 there. So that's Deborah. Now she is faithful. She is courageous here, but she's not the judge in the sense of the military leader, the head of state governing the people. That's not her role. Barak, say, who is that? Barak was the savior judge whose honor was diminished because of his hesitation. She calls him through the word of the Lord. God said, do this, Barak. And he says, okay, only if you come with me. Now, there's a sense in which, yeah, having the prophetic word with you, that could be a good thing. But it's judged negatively in this context. That's why she says, I'll go. Remember, she stays there under the tree. That's where her ministry is. But I'll go with you. She accommodates his weakness here, his hesitation. Nevertheless, the honor will not be yours. That's what she says. The honor will not be yours, but it will be given to a woman. Hmm. And that's a cryptic sign intentionally misleading in the story. Intentionally. Because right away we think, well, the woman, well, who's that going to be? Well, Deborah. Well, it's not. It's not Deborah. And you have to wait for it. Well, what's it going to be? <laughs> Deborah, again, is seen as encouraging, strengthening this man, Barak, for his role. This is your role. You're supposed to lead. You're supposed to deliver. He's hesitant. She says, I'll go with you. And then when the time of the battle comes, she says, Barak, arise. It's now the time. To deliver, and he does deliver, a great deliverance the Lord uses through him. But not the final, not the prize. The prize is Sisera, the commander of the army. Sisera gets away. That's who they're after. And so we pick up the story, if you're in Judges 4, look at verse 17. There is a great victory that the Lord gives through Barak. They completely demolish and conquer this Canaanite army, yet Sisera, verse 17, fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber, the Kenite. And Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, turn aside, my master, turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. And he turned aside to her into the tent and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, please give me a little water to drink for I'm thirsty. So she opened a bottle of milk and gave him a drink. Then she covered him and he said to her, stand in the doorway of the tent and it shall be if anyone comes and inquires of you and says, is anyone there? You shall say no. 
But Jael, Heber's wife, took a tent peg and seized a hammer in her hand and went secretly to him and drove the peg into his temple and it went through to the ground for he was sound asleep and exhausted, so he died. And behold, as Barak pursued Sisera, Jael came out to meet him and said, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. And he entered with her, and behold, Sisera was lying dead with the tent peg in his temple. That's a bit of a gruesome story, isn't it? But that's how that's the climax. Who's Jael? Jael is the heroine of the story. A non-Israelite who displays remarkable courage and faith here. That's what he said. The honor is going to go to her because of your hesitation, Barak. And it does. Jael's not an Israelite. She's a Kenite. They were friendly with the Israelites. But here, her family has moved north and made a treaty with Israel's enemy. And so understand, when she does this, it seems gruesome to us. There's an agreement between Jabin, the Canaanites, and her husband here and the family. And yet, she sides with Israel. As he comes and hides in the tent, she doesn't hide him. She kills him and says, come, take your prize here to Barak as he comes. So she's, she's displaying this remarkable faith and loyalty and courage, even in a brutal action. She is celebrated. Now, we could look at this as like, man, this is brutal. Is, do we condone this kind of thing, right? Women, by the way, this is not a paradigm for uh, <laughs> any kind of women's ministry that I know of in the church. So careful on application, but right. She said, look at chapter five. Remember, chapter five is the poetic celebration of what happened in chapter four. It's the song of Deborah that she writes. And at the end, she says, verse 24, most blessed of women is Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite. Most blessed is she among of women in the tent. He asked for water. She gave him milk in a magnificent bowl. She brought him curds. She reached out her hand for the tent peg and her right hand for the workman's hammer. Then she struck Sisera. She smashed his head and she shattered and pierced his temple between her feet. He bowed and fell. He lay between her feet. He bowed. He fell where he bowed there. He fell dead. <laughs> That's a song, by the way, right? Makes our worship songs a little boring, aren't they? Have this kind of lyrics. They're singing this. Most blessed, she is celebrated for her great faith. So this is a, a tremendous story in its own right, showing Yahweh's unusual way that he brings salvation, brings victory. That's part of the whole story. We don't have time to go through the whole story. I said you go listen to that. But Jael is like a Rahab, a non-Israelite who shows remarkable faith. So all of these women. Like I said, 22 of them, I think I just listed. We celebrate all of these women for their faith and courage, yet their actions, please note this, are still in keeping with the complementarity of men and women. Deborah is no exception. In fact, she portrays it so well that she is not this person, but Barak, you're supposed to lead in this, and he needs help, and she helps in a great way. Let me give you quickly here the second category. So that's the first, women who displayed this great faith and courage. Number two, women helping men. Women helping men. Certainly Deborah is an example of that also, but others, women helping men. As, as we might expect, within this complementarian framework of God's people, 
many women are notable primarily because of their connection to either the patriarchs, their wives, or other significant men. We would expect that, and indeed, that's what we find. Here, in these cases, these women were significant in helping. That is, influencing, steering, advising, assisting these men. In some ways, it's the opposite of what Eve did. Right In her deception, she led Adam wrongly into sin. These women are helping lead men, that is, helping steer, helping lead them not into sin, but steer them away, advise them, assist them. Let me, again, just bullet several of these here. Here's the bulleted list there on the screen. You can see, again, we don't have time to move through all of these. We'll look at one in just a moment. Rebecca, now we don't condone Rebecca's tactics. She did deceive her husband, but part of what she's doing there is keeping Isaac from blessing the wrong son, right? In keeping with God's promise. Zipporah, may not know that example, in Exodus 4, Moses' wife, her son is not circumcised. Moses is about to be killed by the Lord. And she does it and spares him. Quite a story. The daughters of Zelophehad. You know those daughters? There are five daughters. Actually, all of them named in Scripture. They're found at the end of the book of Numbers. Their father has had no son, and they come and say, the inheritance of our father should pass down through us. Really courageous to do such a thing, almost unheard of. And they were right. The Lord says, they're right. Again, they demonstrate a remarkable faith here. This is the new generation of Israel that's about to enter the land. They're not unbelieving like their fathers. They trust God's promise. The inheritance in the land is all important. That's why that story, in fact, that's so fascinating. It's given in Numbers 27 and Numbers 36. It's how the whole book of Numbers ends with these daughters. It's quite remarkable because of their faith. And they're told, however, yes, the inheritance, but so that inheritance doesn't go outside your tribe, you have to marry men only within your tribe. There's a limitation. And they said, absolutely, we're willing to do that. So that's a great story. Bathsheba, we know Bathsheba and how she was mistreated there, and yet the Lord's redemption of her. First Kings chapter 1, we saw it again, back to Kings, when David was on his deathbed and seemed not care at all about the succession of the throne. Who was going to be the next king? The Davidic line was on the line here. And another son was making a bid for it. Remember, it's Bathsheba who has to come up to David. And say, it's Solomon, all her action in there, to see to it that Solomon is anointed king. What a help she is. The Shunammite woman, we know from the story of Elisha, her provision. She's a married woman without children. But she provides for Elisha both a home and food there. Quite a, quite a story. So, again, all these women. Here's one I want to highlight just a little bit more. Abigail. Just turn over in your Bible, just keep going to Samuel. First Samuel 25 is her story. Abigail, maybe you're familiar with this story. Here's another example of a remarkable woman helping David this time. First Samuel 25, again the context here, we've talked through the book of Samuel. You can go listen to that also, uh, this chapter specifically. David is on the run from Saul. That's the story. He's anointed as the next king, but he hasn't been installed as king yet. Saul's still on the throne, chasing him down. And here we find him down in the south. And part of his travels, he has 
protected the the herds and sheep herders, the shepherds of this rich man, Nabal, in the territory of Carmel and Moen here. And if you remember the story, this rich man snubs David and his men. Just a, a gross act of inhospitality, especially in this culture at the time. David is infuriated by it. He tells the men, strap on your sword. We are going to come and clean out. We're going to kill everyone in their household. But this rich man's wife, Abigail, hears of it, and she takes action. What action she takes. Her faith, her her wisdom, her discernment, make a meal. She tries to head off David from committing this horrible act that he's about to commit. And she does. Let's pick up the story if you're in 1 Samuel 25 and verse 23. And just listen to Abigail. Listen to this woman of faith and wisdom and discernment. As she gently and winsomely counsels God's anointed king. It's really amazing. When Abigail saw David, verse 23, she hurried and dismounted from the donkey and fell on her face before David and bowed herself to the ground. And she fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the blame. And please let your maidservant speak to you and listen to the words of your maidservant. Please do not let my Lord pay attention to this worthless man, Nabal. For as his name, so is he. Nabal means fool, as you know. Nabal is his name. She, she was married to this fool who is defying God's anointed. So not just unbeliever, but a defier of God's Messiah here. That's a fool. And she knows that, how hard that must have been, that marriage, to be married to this man. So she says, don't listen to him. I understand. But I, your maidservant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. 26. Now, therefore, my Lord... As Yahweh lives and as your soul lives, since Yahweh has restrained you from shedding blood and from avenging yourself by your own hand, now then, let your enemies and those who seek evil against my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this gift which your maidservant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who accompany my Lord. Please forgive the transgression of your maidservant, for Yahweh will certainly make my Lord an enduring house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of Yahweh. And evil shall not be found in you all your days. And should anyone rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, then the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living with Yahweh your God. But the lives of your enemies he will sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And it shall come about when Yahweh shall do for my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and shall anoint, appoint you ruler over Israel that this will not cause grief or troubled heart to my Lord, both by having shed blood without cause and by my Lord having avenged himself. When Yahweh shall deal with my Lord, then remember your maidservant. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be Yahweh, God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. And blessed be your discernment. And blessed be you who have kept me this day from bloodshed and from avenging myself of my own hand. Nevertheless, as Yahweh, God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from harming you, unless you had come quickly to meet me, surely there would not have been left to Nabal until morning light as much as one male. It's in there. Abigail, what actions, right? She has to act independently from her foolish husband here. To spare his life. But the story is really not about sparing Nabal's life. Because God's just going to kill him. For his defiance. Right in the next part of the story there. I won't read that. 
she spares David from himself, from becoming like Saul. That's who he's going to become like here doing this, seeking his own revenge, self-serving, taking justice into his own hands, something he has not done all the way to this point. Bathsheba rescues David from himself. She gives wise spiritual counsel to the anointed. What a woman she is. A remarkable woman. So again, all of these women, these women that we have looked at, they are remarkable. They are celebrated for their faith, for their responsibility, for their help. And all of them fit within this framework, this pattern of God's complementary design. It's beautiful. I want to end with one category to finish. The third, a unique one, barren woman, women and childbirth. Barren women and childbirth. When we talk about patterns in the Old Testament, motifs in the Old Testament, this is one of those you can't help but see. At major points in redemptive history, we encounter a woman who can't have children, who is given power by God to conceive a child. Those aren't just coincidental. It's part of God's unfolding. Who are those? Again, I'll just list those for you here. All of the wives of patriarchs, Sarah. Again, the whole redemptive plan of God starts Abraham and Sarah. Abram and Sarai. The whole plan is contingent upon making Abraham this father of a multitude, the seed, and she can't have children. That's not a coincidence. God didn't choose the wrong couple. It's part of his purpose. It's quite remarkable. Then Rebecca and then Rachel, Manoah's wife, the last of the book of Judges, the last cycle, Samson, same story. And then a Hannah, of course, we probably know most of all Hannah and her desperation. Again, suffering the distortions we see there of husband and wife and that family, but her remarkable faith. I wish we could read more of Hannah and find her in Samuel chapter 1. Her remarkable faith for child and God intervenes and she is the mother of Samuel. He becomes that great next figure who will anoint the kings. That motif continues right when you open the pages of the New Testament. The greatest turning point in redemptive history. The New Testament, how does it start? With Zacharias and Elizabeth who can't have children. And God's intervention for John the Baptist. And all of those motifs are going to culminate and God's going to elevate it to a whole new level with Mary. Not a, not a barren woman, but a virgin. Just part of his plan. Now, this inability to have children, we see it in the Bible as devastating. Right? Just think of Hannah's anguish. It's devastating if you've experienced it and are. The Lord knows and hears. It's devastating because it strikes at this unique Function, this primary function of the woman as designed by God. There are the reverse of that other times, the Lord's punishment for disobedience at times is closing the womb. That's sad. Why does he do this? Well, the primary reason for this pattern is to display that nothing is impossible for God. 
That's what he says. Why I'm doing this. He'll see nothing is impossible. That is, as God unfolds his redemptive plan, he wants to make it clear that it is all me. It's all my grace. It's all my power. It's not human effort. It is all dependent on God. God's the one who intervenes. So that's why these are at strategic points of why he does that. So that's, that's the primary reason for this. And yet, don't miss that in every case, it involves the birth of a child by a woman. Every time. The birth of a child by a woman. I know we can read over that, but she, the woman there, is central in this unfolding redemptive purpose of God. This goes right back to what we saw with Eve, the mother of the living, and the promise of the seed of the woman. The seed of the woman. That's where this story is going, all the way down to Christ, who will be uniquely the seed of the woman and not the seed of a man. Virgin birth. It's really remarkable. So while the primary function is display that nothing is impossible to God, at the same time, I'll just add this as a maybe a secondary function here, it displays the significance of the woman's unique role in having children. How significant that is in the purposes of God. Again, that's true very specifically when it comes to tracing the seed all the way down to Jesus. But it's true generally. This irreplaceable role. This unique, irreplaceable role. We celebrate, we treasure motherhood as the people of God. His unique design. Again, when we talk about patterns of the Old Testament, the Old Testament patterns, one of the most obvious, assumed, everywhere patterns is that women were married overwhelmingly and had children, right? I mean, it's just all through because, again, it's celebrated. It's God's good design. So what we'd expect coming out of Genesis 2 and 3 and the unique design of men and women. So we see it here celebrated in unique ways. Now, hold on. We will, as we move forward in the study, we will talk about singleness. We need to. Yes, this is the norm. This is what we see. But there are exceptions, and God given exceptions. We'll talk about that, and how's that fit, and can't have children. We need to talk about those things. So here we're just talking about, I would say, the ordinary, the normal here, what we see most prevalent. It's celebrated. So I want to end here this morning. We're, we're out of time. I'm just going to end by having us turn to perhaps a familiar chapter, Proverbs 31. If you know that, I'm just going to read this chapter as we finish. Proverbs 31, 10 through 31, an alphabet of excellence. <laughs> I say that, an alphabet. This is an acrostic. That is, every line begins with the next Hebrew letter. In this poem celebrating the excellent wife here. This is the capstone of the book of Proverbs. Proverbs is all about wisdom and wisdom is often personified as a woman. And here it's fleshed out in this woman. Now, I want to read it. But I do not want women to be deflated every time they hear this chapter know that can happen it can almost become dreaded 
like, I, I can't live up to that. But this is idealized. There's uniquenesses here with the giftings of this woman. But it's, it's idealized, but it's yet to be cherished. The pursuit of lady wisdom here personified. And as I read it, because it probably is familiar, just notice. Notice this woman exercising all these physical, mental, entrepreneurial gifts and powers in serving her household. This is not demeaning. This is celebrated. This is celebrated. So let's end on this note this morning. Let me read it. Starting in verse 10. An excellent wife who can find. For her worth is far above tools. The heart of her husband trusts in her. And she, he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not evil all the days of her life. She looks for wool and flax. She works with her hands in delight. She's like merchant ships. She brings her food from afar. She rises also while it is still night and gives food to her household and portions to her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. From her earnings, she plants a vineyard. She girds herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She senses that her gain is good. Her lamp does not go out at night. She stretches out her hands to the distaff. Her hands grasp the spindle. She extends her hand to the poor. She stretches out her hands to the needy. She is not afraid of the snow for her household, for all her household are clothed with scarlet. She makes coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments. She sells them. She supplies belts to the tradesmen. Strength and dignity are her clothing. She smiles at the future. She opens her mouth in wisdom and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and bless her. Her husband also, he praises her saying, many daughters have done nobly, but you excel them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears Yahweh, she shall be praised. Give her the product of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. Oh, may that be a commendable example as we think through men and women. Let me pray for us as we close this morning. Father, thank you for how your word reveals to us and displays to us so many examples of godly women. Not perfect women, but godly women pursuing you. You using them in tremendous ways. I, I just pray now, speak a word of real encouragement even to the women here this morning. Of how indispensable they are in the people of God. For the sake of your kingdom, how you choose to use men and women in these vital, necessary ways to reflect you and to advance this kingdom. Oh, give us a love for this as we learn more. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.